I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. This is one of your hosts, Kaitel, and joining me here in LA, as always, from back in our hometown of London, is my co-host, Joe. We have a special guest for today as well, who we're both thrilled to have with us on the pod. He's a former Premier League and international footballer. He's also an author, a keynote speaker with a master's degree in psychology, and a fellow podcaster too. We welcome Paul McVeigh to the United Mates Football Podcast. Cheers for joining us, Maka. It's a pleasure to have you as our guest. And how are you doing, mate? Very well. Gone straight in with the with the old football and nicknames there. Are we going to the Maka? Okay, brilliant. I didn't know it was that kind of informal chat we're having this evening. Good. I like it. Yes, yeah. Maybe I'm being a bit presumptuous, but hopefully <laughs> we'll um we'll we'll end up, yeah, maybe like uh, feeling like we're we're old friends by the by the time that this podcast is is done. Speaking of old friends, Joe. We're going to go on to talk a bit more about Tottenham from Paul's time there. But as we record, Spurs yesterday lost their fourth North London or London derby, I guess, of the of the season so far. Yeah. Um, would you mind sort of like ranking those from most painful to least painful? They, they've all been pretty painful, to be fair. Um, look, I, I don't want to give you the satisfaction of saying Arsenal was the worst, but obviously that was a pretty grim day. But I mean... Yeah, it's 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 been a rough time to be a Spurs fan. I don't know. It's uh, don't know what to say about it. It's, um, it'd be worse though. You you could be a Man United fan as well. That's true. So no. you know every cloud. Yeah, you're right. I, that actually cheered me up watching that game yesterday. <laughs> um, yeah, that was um, that was good fun. But um, Paul, then it's it's a pleasure to to have you with us. And whenever we have a guest on the podcast, we always start by asking an icebreaker question. So we've got one for you. Um, Kaitel referenced your nickname earlier, Maka, but I know when you were at Norwich, the fans used to sing a song to the, the tune of Can't Take My Eyes Off You. Um, that was your kind of, um, that was your one. Um, so, I mean, for some people, that song maybe is a, is a guilty pleasure, you could say. <laughs> so what we, um, what we want to know is, we're going we're gonna to focus on YouTube as well. Um, do you have any... Any videos on YouTube, any guilty pleasure videos you like to watch? We'll give you some time to think about it. We'll we'll give our answers first. My answer would probably be, I'll, I'll keep it to football, and it's probably, I'm not a Watford fan, but that video where um, Leicester missed the penalty and then Watford got up the other end and Troy Deeney scores in the last second, That that that's a that's a pretty cool video. Um, I'm, I'm a Watford fan and I'm watching that. But Kai, um, how about you? What, what, what are your guilty pleasure YouTube videos? Well, in terms of YouTube videos that I can't keep my eyes off of, maybe a little bit of a guilty pleasure, randomly is competitive eating videos. I'm quite a small guy, but I have, a, I guess, a mild obsession with, yeah, watching people eat disgusting amounts of food in a, in a very, very short amount of time. And I like to think that I, I would be quite good at it. I've got nothing to base that on, but maybe... Joe, one of these days we'll have like an, an eat off on the podcast. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> um, Paul, what about you? Do you know what I was? As I was thinking there, I I really was struggling to find anything because 
just I don't know I don't watch a lot of TV you know any kind of spare time I might have probably the last thing I would think of doing is watching YouTube videos and especially if it's if it's not going to be productive for me in any way I'm just that kind of person but it did make me realize that there are loads of um, self-defense videos that I watch so that's yeah so maybe that is the one thing that I, I would say and that's because it's I suppose in a, in a roundabout way, it is a small way of me being productive because you know, you're talking about Kai, you being a small guy and I'm only, you know, four foot nothing over here. So always the smallest player in our team. And I've always had this really strong desire to basically be like Bruce Lee. So if I could defend myself in any situation, I think that would be incredibly confident whereas at the minute i couldn't punch my way out of a paper bag so i think trying to watch self-defense videos on online is, is probably something i do find myself random and then of course they start finding me the more you watch them yeah i've gone down a i think a self-defense rabbit hole or two in, in the past on youtube and as a kid i, I took um taekwondo I, I didn't even i didn't make it to the second belt i made it to in between the first and second belt i guess it's white belt yellow belt and i had a white belt with a yellow stripe on it and then i gave up <laughs> Um, but moving on to, I guess, the real questions, the real football stuff that, that we're here for. And we always like to start with our guests by taking it all the way back to, to their childhoods and what it was that sort of initiated them into, into the, the footballing world and, and why they fell in love with the game. So off the top of your head, Paul, looking back as a kid in, in Northern Ireland, what, what made you fall in love with football? And, and maybe was there a particular player that you looked up to? I think George Best was a bit you know before your time but and youtube as well would have been yeah a bit a bit ahead of the time so you wouldn't have been watching compilations of him but was there a player you looked up to as a kid um yeah well probably first world cup ever watched was mexico 86 so that would have been all about maradona and then the next one was italia 90 and then that was all about paul gascoigne so in between those two different World Cups, one I was, I think I was eight or nine, and then the next one I was 11 or 12. And in between those, I had signed for Tottenham Hotspur. So, and it happened to be that Gaza was at Tottenham Hotspur at the time. So to go from, you know, watching these superstars on TV, and there wasn't a lot of live games back in the day, but watching the World Cup and seeing Paul Gascoigne star in Italian 90 and just you know, just the skills, the ability, the, the charisma he had, the personality on the pitch. But then when I then went over to Tottenham Hotspur, I suppose on trial, first time I went over, and on my very first day, the youth development officer, it's actually a guy called John Munker, his son, was a famous professional footballer for like West Ham and Swindon, um, famously got stood on by Eric Cantona whenever he, was, he tried to tackle him once. And uh and yes, so John McCurr's dad was the development officer at Spurs. My first day, walked in at White Hart Lane and he said, listen, Paul, you're not going to the training ground today. And I was like, really? What's what's happening? I said, we need you to do an advert for uh, the Sun sticker album. And I was like, what? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, and it's with Paul Gascoigne out on the White Hart Lane pitch. I just was absolutely, you can imagine, nearly peed my pants, a little 11, 12-year-old meeting your hero, you know, just going to do an advert on TV. And he said, so we'll just go and get you your England jersey and then you can get changed. And I went, what? <laughs> I was like, I don't know if you know where I'm from in Belfast, but if I go home and I've been on TV in an England shirt, you know, I quite liked my knees and I didn't really want to lose them at that point. So I thought, let's let's not do the England 
jersey. And he says, well, you need to do an advert in an England jersey and an advert in a Scotland jersey. And I said, well, Scotland, they can kind of get away with, but I can't do it for him, honestly. I'm, I might die. This is going to, you know, it could take my life. And he said, seriously? And I was like, honestly, I can't do it, John. I'm really sorry. And he goes, we'll pay you £200. And I was like, yep, where do I sign? <laughs> and this was the beginning of the mercenary career of a professional footballer. So, yeah, but it was amazing doing, doing an advert with Gaza, meeting your hero, you know, getting a few quid in your pocket and then suddenly being on TV and everyone, every time you went to school, was like, oh, you're that kid that was on an advert with Paul Gascoigne. Uh, that is, um, that's very cool. That is a real um, pinch myself moment, I suppose. Um, and, uh, you know, it's great that you're talking about Spurs. I know that's where you start your career. Mm. It's who I support. Um, and I know, obviously, in the 96-97 the season, Paul, that was when you made um, three first-team appearances for Spurs in the league, and you actually scored a goal that season, which Kai will speak about in a bit. But I know also... In that season, it was quite a good season for Spurs. We finished 10th, I believe. There were alongside yourself, there were the likes of Stephen Carr, Jamie Clapham, Neil Fenn, Rory Allen, a lot of young players who were getting the opportunity to also play in the first team. So bearing that in mind, did the presence of, I suppose, other young players that you would have been playing with in the reserve teams, academy size, did that kind of help that transition for you when you did start playing for the first team? Absolutely, it made all the difference. And ironically, it was it was the the fact that whenever I initially arrived at Spurs in 1994 as a 16 year old kid, my first day coincided with Spurs signing Jurgen Klinsmann. So he just been you know talked about the World Cup. So he just starred in the USA World Cup in '94. Spurs had signed him from Monaco, and so his first day was the youth team's first day. And because the actual rest of the first team weren't back, they the press wanted some footage of Jurgen Klinsmann playing in a shirt and in the Spurs kit. So the youth team had to go and train. But I remember watching him and standing next to this guy, looked like a movie star, just, you know, very good looking guy, multimillionaire, one of the best players in the world, already been a World Cup winner. And I just thought, wow, this is just, this is, if this is what it takes to be a professional footballer, I have no chance in the world because that is, you know, that's way up there and I'm way down here. So it actually was quite, um, really destructive this belief that I created for myself thinking that I'm never going to do this and it was only when you mentioned the likes of Stephen Carr who was an outstanding young player from 16 pretty much in the Spurs first team playing every week incredible player but then was Rory Allen who came through our youth team and he made his first team debut before I did so by January of 97 uh, Rory made his debut against Manchester United and it was you know that amazing treble winning team at United with you know Beckham Schools, Kane, gigs, etc. And Rory made his debut against Spurs live on Sky Sports um, at White Hart Lane and scored against Man United. And I remember just watching my mate who had come through the youth team with scoring this goal against probably the best team in the country, best team in the world at the time. And I remember just thinking, wow, if you know if he can do that, then so can I. And it was you know such an incredible fast track to go from never thinking I had a chance of getting in the first team to three months later, making my debut up front with Teddy Sheringham and, you know, Saul Campbell and who else, Darren Anderton and Ian Walker, all those kind of England that the nationals that were playing at the time and then going and scoring on my home debut as well. So yeah, it was amazing time. Great, great experience. But of course I probably was just a little bit out of my depth that I didn't ever really have the ability to sustain that Premier League level because, you know, those players are, are so exceptional so really have to give them all the credit because the couple of goals or sorry the couple of games that I had in the one goal 
you know, that was me trying my best and only getting very, very close to it once. But the rest of the time was probably nowhere near that level. Well, funnily enough, you mentioned, you know, if Rory can do it, I can do it. It would take you a few more years and you'd be at Norwich, but you'd get that goal against Manchester United like, uh, like he would. I think sticking with Spurs, though, for now, and that goal that, you know, we've all been referencing uh, against Coventry on your home debut for, for Spurs, that must have been, you know, you talk about a pathway before you and realizing, you know, you can do it. And then, you again, you, you're in the first team, you score a goal on your home debut. How, how special was that? Was that like a, a realization? Were you very proud? Was it something that you reflected on in the days after? I didn't really have the ability to reflect on things at the time. I was, you know, you're... <laughs> It's very hard to, to try and describe it. You're you're essentially a kid. Like, what were you two guys doing when you were 19? I was uh, missing classes at, at school, at college. Yeah. Not going so, to university lectures. Yeah, probably, similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Probably not the most responsible thing or the time of your life. And yet I'm supposed to be a, a professional, disciplined, you know, top class elite athlete. And I just wasn't. That's that's the problem. You know, you had a bit of a wee bit of something that the manager who who gave me a chance, Jerry Francis, former England player, England captain, you know, he, he gave me a chance and saw something, but it was probably more down to the fact that I didn't have the maturity to be able to score that goal against Spurs or sorry, against Coventry for Spurs. And you're talking about reflecting. The only reflecting I did is whenever I saw myself in a mirror in a nightclub with a bottle of beer in my hand because that summer I went home and pretty much party like I was Mario Gatza after just scored the winning goal in the World Cup final. It was just ridiculous. So this is the problem as a young, immature player that's suddenly been handed a, a three-year, four-year contract on more money than it ever possibly could think I was you know, worth or, or would have in my bank account as, at 19 buy myself a sports car and all the rest of it. It was just kind of ridiculous because I went out every night and basically was on the lash for six weeks and then went back to preseason and was, you know, unfit, overweight and essentially never recovered, never got another chance at Spurs. And, and that was me blowing my one opportunity to try and make it at Spurs and, and didn't have the, the maturity or the wherewithal to be able to handle it. Was it on that note, just the timing in that case I know you mentioned that maybe you weren't as physically gifted as some of the players at that elite level but if you weren't you know putting one foot in front of the other and kind of your best foot forward um you mentioned the partying lifestyle I think we all remember the the bleached blonde hair as well so definitely probably plenty of, of looking in the mirror um but yeah do you think that had you committed yourself 110 percent at that point um you never would have dropped out of the Premier League and maybe had a longer career at Spurs no. Definitely not. I definitely would have had the potential to have a longer career at Spurs. Don't know about never dropping out of the Premier League. But what was really interesting was I really struggled physically throughout the two years in the youth team. You know, I just couldn't compete with the bigger lads, the stronger, the more mature physically and mostly and mentally. And, and I just was not able to compete with them. But when I turned first year professional, something happened over that summer. And I suddenly went from being in the bottom three of running to then suddenly being in the top three. Now, this coincided with me having an operation on my nose and, and the, the surgeon that I saw said, essentially, it's slightly, slightly off center. So you're not efficient in your breathing. And when he fixed it over the summer and I came back and essentially, as I said, went from bottom three to top three. So that probably gave me the athleticism to get into the team. But then after that, going home in the summer after, I just didn't have the professionalism to train be strict you know 
do everything I need to do. But I suppose the the one thing that I do have and, and probably had it then and still have it now is that I'm a really fast learner and I am very good at learning from my experiences. And even though that six weeks of going out partying and all the rest of it, for the rest of my career, I didn't take more than one day off in a row during the off season, which meant every single off season, I was training probably four or five times a week so that I would come back for the next season fitter and probably in better shape than what I left the one before, which is probably then why I had a long-term career in professional football. Yeah, that's interesting to see, you know, that change in approach and even interesting, like you said, that operation and how that kind of changed your athleticism. That's really interesting. But um, in March 2000, that would be when you would make that move to Norwich for the first time. And I guess, obviously, you'd, you'd moved to Tottenham as a 16-year-old, as you said, but this was this was more or less the first sort of move as a as a professional, as a sense, before, yeah, you hadn't made a debut at that point. So how did you find that experience of changing clubs and kind of switching London as a home and going down to Norfolk? Was it was it something you enjoyed or was it quite daunting at the time when you, when you did it? A bit of both. It was very daunting, but also really enjoyable just because I, you know, I'd never been outside of London, really. Um, even just the fact that you're with Londoners every day and for five years, I was kind of getting a bit brainwashed by, you know, London being the epicenter of the world and anything outside of London, you're basically a farmer. And so because I had this sort of drip fed into me from all the Londoners I'd see every day, that whenever I got up to Norwich and suddenly you realize, oh, it's a beautiful city, lovely place, lovely people, you know, and then I got there and thinking of oh, left Spurs and I'm a striker, I'm going to waltz into the first team. And then I got there and suddenly I'm, up against Craig Bellamy, who was a 17-year-old player at the time when I was 20, and, and he was just incredible. Like, I mean, outstanding, probably one of the best young players I'd ever seen in my life. At 17, to be playing in Norwich's first team, scoring goals every week, to be pretty much the best player for Norwich. And then that summer, I joined in the March, and by the summertime, he then left and joined Coventry for six million. Um, whenever I think Gordon Strachan signed in there but he was just outstanding so but it wasn't just Craig Bellamy he would play up front with Ewan Roberts who was scoring 20 goals a season in the championship so and scored over 200 goals in his career so you know a proper professional proper goal scorer and I'm thinking I'm going to waltz into that starting lineup and simply didn't happen and unfortunately my friend one of my best friends in football a guy called Phil Moran who if you're in front of a laptop you might want to google Philip Moran because we both left Belfast at 16 and at 16, he went off to Manchester United and joined that treble winning team of, of as I said, Beckham, Giggs, Scholes and Keane. And I went off to Spurs. And at 21, we both joined Norwich in 2000. And so because he was there and he's one of my best friends in football, but he was, again, top class player. And for us to then start going through the, the sort of the next seven or eight years together with one of your best mates and, you know, and playing in the playoff finals and winning the league and playing in the Premier League and all the rest of it. It just it was it was really, really special. But it just showed how much I had to improve from leaving Spurs to get into and break into the first team and stay there. You definitely did improve in terms of um appearances and, and goals as as well. Cause at the end of the 0102 season, which you mentioned the playoff final um that you narrowly lost on penalties to to Birmingham. I think I think you'd scored 10 goals perhaps and then the following year scored more goals even I think 15 or so and those were I think the two most prolific seasons 
um, in your playing days. So on your form in front of goal at that time, what, what was it in your game that, that clicked and led to those goals? Was it simply a matter of finding your level at the time as a young striker in the championship? And I guess just beyond that, after you've scored these goals, I think you then got moved out to, to the wing or back into midfield mm. by Nigel Worthington at the time. Was that quite difficult given that you'd been producing when called upon as a striker? Yeah, I, th- I think that's really, really interesting that you know all this because that's exactly what happened. And that's probably not something you can see on the internet. That's uh, something that was that was almost read between the lines. And the reason what Nigel Worthington said to me, he said, listen, you have the ability to play in multiple positions but like you and Roberts can't play in anywhere else apart from up front or some of the other people can't play anywhere else. They have to stay up front, but you can go from up front, the left wing or right wing or behind the striker, top of the midfield or top of the diamond there. So it ended up, I don't know whether it was a good thing to be versatile or whether it was a bad thing, but either way, I, I did just had a, a number of years where everything was just going well. Like I said, that first year breaking into the, the first team of 2001 and two. It was only because, and again, this is just the, well, the the horrible side of football and also the, I suppose, the fortunate side where our best player at the time was actually another Welsh guy after Craig Bellamy gone, a guy called Chris Llewellyn. So we just turned down, I think it was a three million pound bid for him from Aston Villa for that summer, but he stayed and he started the season left wing. And because in our first home game of the season against Man City, who, you know, Kevin Keegan's Man City with the Sean Wright Phillips and the Darren Huckabee was playing that team and Sean Gooder and all those, you know, really, really good Man City players. Um, Chris Llewellyn, after 10 minutes, fractured his cheekbone by running into a defender. And it was awful. You know, he got stretched off straight to hospital. And you can imagine, like, terrible, horrible incident for him. But, of course, you need to bring someone on. Worthy turned around to me because it wasn't a striker he needed. He needed a left winger. I said, we might go on play on the left. And I went on and, and essentially played the next 80, next 80 minutes, scored at the end, scored the second goal with beat Man City, who would go on and win the league that year. And then I stayed in the team all the way to the playoff final, you know, played in the semi, scored in the semi final against Wolves, pretty much had a, you know, a really, really sort of top uh, finish to the season in terms of goals, consistent goals of scoring about four or five in the, in the run up to get us into the playoffs. And it just, it all came together. But then, of course, it went from that guy, as you said. Then into the next season, I felt so confident, just knew it was going to do well. And then I went out and was top goal scorer that year for the club. And then, of course, the next season, we then really started investing whenever whenever Delia decided to bring in the likes of Peter Crouch, Darren Huckerby, and, and then Leon McKenzie, Matt Svensson. And we had, like, a really, really good team. And then we just ran away with the league. You know, we went to Ipswich, I think, somewhere in Boxing Day or somewhere around Christmas, went top, and then we were top for the rest of the year and just ran away with it. And then the next year, you say, you know, going into the Premier League. And, of course, it's just such a different world. And you can see even this year with Norwich, who, you know, did fantastically well last year in the Championship, going into the Premier League and suddenly they just look out of the depth. Yeah, well, it's been a... It's been a theme with Norwich, I guess, more or less since the days you were there, Paul. But obviously, you mentioned there was the, the 94-point season where you'd get promotion. Then you'd, you'd play in the Premier League for Norwich, 04-05, score the goal at Old Trafford. But on a more general point of view, obviously, Norwich got relegated, which was disappointing. It went down to the last day. But on a personal point of view, were you satisfied with your own performances from that season? It's, it's really hard to, to say you were because... You know, put it this way, 
every time you played, you felt smart. Ah, sorry, let me rephrase that. Every time I played, I felt so out of my depth. Whereas if I went back a couple of months and was playing in the championship, you know, you were kind of going out with this just aura of confidence and self-belief, knowing that, you know, no matter who you were playing against, you just knew you would do well. You knew you were, you'd be able to control the game. And then going into the Premier League game, games and playing against even, you know, whether it was middle mid-table teams or bottom of the table teams, they were all exceptional. So even like at the time, Bolton had JJ Okacha. And just playing against JJ Okacha was just, the guy was just a magician with the football. And that was obviously one of the lower ranked teams in the league at the time. But of course, we then played against, you know, possibly the greatest team that's ever played in the Premier League, the Invincibles, Arsenal, and up against Thierry Henry and Dennis Bergkamp and Vieira and, you know, Saul Campbell, my old mate, had joined, joined him that stage. And you're just going to play against these lads going, this, this should not be fair. How can you play against a team that are just exceptional they have no weakness they literally had no weakness and and they absolutely were battering everybody and then we got them the end of their invincible season and they were still unbeaten by the time they came to us and they were just the, the obviously spanked us 4-0 but it's just you just sometimes you just thinking it's it should not be on an equal playing field playing against Thierry Henry because that guy is just a phenomenon and he smells good as well which is really annoying <laughs> Definitely a favorite of mine uh, growing up as an Arsenal supporter. I think I remember that that game, um, or at least in, I definitely remember the game at Highbury uh, from that yeah. season. I think Bergkamp yeah. scoring as well as, yeah, Henri scoring a, a few. Um, yeah. But sticking with that that season, um, a couple of quick nostalgic questions before we move on to some st- uh, talk about your international career. And I can't mention, well, we can't talk about that season without mentioning, and you mentioned Delia Smith as well, but that where are you? let's be having you moment yeah what did the players make of that what was kind of the consensus in the dressing room and around the club well so it was really weird because this is this is the because you know everybody has their own experience of different events in time so this is obviously against man city on i think it was monday night football um actually i think dean eisen had scored a fantastic goal to get his back in maybe we were 2-0 down and he scored lobbed over david james really really top goal typical dean eisen and, and at halftime daily obviously came out to try and g up the fans now what people probably didn't realize was that so i was substituted at the time so we were out warming up at halftime having a you know kicking the ball around a few passes a few touches but daily has the microphone in the middle of the pitch and there's a sky sports camera about a foot or two foot away from her but the PA system's not working. So Delia has a microphone and she's obviously screaming what she was screaming down the microphone, but nobody, none of the 25,000 people in the stand could hear anything. So obviously we're like, I'm five yards away from her actually. And I couldn't hear what she was saying because you just have you know, 25,000 people just kind of chatting through halftime. So I was like, oh, I don't know what she's doing. Maybe she's doing an interview or something. Anyway, then the match finishes, obviously we turn into the train the next morning. That's all over Sky Sports News, all over the news. Everybody's talking about it. And I was like, what? Really? How, how, how did this even happen? Because I didn't, I was there. I was next here. And I didn't know what she was talking about. So it's just weird how this happens. And of course, it just was down and kind of folklore of, of the, way, the way that Daly was trying to rally the crowd. And, and clearly, it probably didn't work that well. That's very fascinating. Thanks for that, that deep cut. <laughs> Now we, yeah, to know that at the time no one had an opinion on it because nobody, nobody knew about it until after the fact. That's yeah, very yeah. interesting. Um, but 
I said I had a couple of these, yeah, sort of nostalgic questions, and you sort of teed me up quite nicely um, by mentioning the goal scorer from that game, Dean, Dean Ashton for Norwich. He obviously would go down with Norwich, I think halfway maybe through the next season, come back mm-hmm. up to join West Ham and was beginning to flourish in the Premier League and I think looking like he might have, you know, cemented a place in the England team as well. I thought he was a brilliant player. I think that's kind of the, the general opinion. Um, mm-hmm. Just how good was he and what do you think his ceiling might have been had he not had to retire because of terrible injuries? Yeah, do you know what? That is the $64,000 question because I honestly haven't really come across many players, many strikers better than him. So, and put that into context, I was very fortunate to play with, with Teddy Sharon him on my debut. And obviously Teddy being the absolute superstar that he was and winning the treble with United and all the stuff he did with England in Euro 96 and just outstanding career. And he, I would put him right up there with Teddy. Probably Teddy was you know ahead of Dean Ashton, but I would put him right up there in that kind of league. Played with you know Sir Les Ferdinand as well. Just again, outstanding goal scorer, incredible athlete. But Dean Ashton could do things with the ball that Les would never have been able to do. But Les was obviously an outstanding goal scorer, but so was Dean. And that's that's why I was so gutted for him because he's a really big friend of mine. And, and I honestly thought that Dean Ashton and Wayne Rooney would have played up front for a long time together because he was like the perfect striker. He had everything. Honestly, he had... So he wasn't the fastest in the world, but once he got going, he was quick. He was moving, you know, and his movement was out, outstanding. His strength and be able to hold the ball up, his head and ability, the fact that he could control the ball, he could play these passes, long, short, drop in, a bit like the way Harry Kane can do a bit of everything. And obviously Harry Kane's is, you know, better again in terms of his gold record. But the fact that you're talking about Dean Ison with the likes of Teddy Sheringham, Les Ferdinand, Harry Kane, Wayne Rooney, you know, he was almost like a kind of the the closest I would have seen to like an Alan Shearer. And unfortunately, again, Shearer obviously had his injuries and and you know, just sort of probably credit to the guy of, of what he came back from, from all his knee surgeries. And, and Dean Ashton obviously had something that he just, it was impossible to come back for because I don't know if you know about his injury, but they essentially fused the bones in his ankle together. So again, you know, once that happened, then he's, you just don't have the mobility or flexibility to be able to, to play at that level. But phew, my goodness, what a player. What a player. God, wow. Yeah, no, it's amazing to hear. I mean, you, you played with the guy directly and I remember him being good. But yeah, it's, it's such a shame that, you know, we were kind of robbed of seeing him um, yeah. injury free. But, you know, at least he, he still managed a decent career. Um, but yeah, what, what could have been? Um, we're just going to talk a bit about Northern Ireland now quickly, Paul. You played for them 20 times. It's your home country. Obviously, it must be an incredible honour. But during those 20 appearances, you actually, I mean, you made your debut under Laurie McMenemy, I should say. And then you played for Sammy McElroy and even Laurie Sanchez too. So whilst it must have been, you know, it must have been fantastic to play so many times for your home country, was how disruptive was it in the camp that, in that period you were playing for them that, you know, the managers was changing so often. Did it, did it have a negative effect on the squad? I wouldn't say that. Uh, we just say that they all had their different styles. And <laughs> just as soon as you say Laurie McManamy, uh, it just keeps reminding me of this phrase that he, he, it was so funny. I'd never heard it. Probably haven't heard it since, but essentially we were in the, in the like in the middle of the center of the training pitch, having a bit of a kind of, you know, team talk after stopping the session for whatever. And it just brought everyone in 
lads, listen. And he started going all philosophical. He's like, in football, they're either piano players or piano pushers. <laughs> and, you, and you've got to work out which one you are. <laughs> and if you're a piano pusher, give the ball to the piano player. <laughs> and I'm not joking. I was like, everybody's laughing. I'm still laughing. I just thinking because he had this real Geordie accent and it was so funny listening to him. But it was just, it almost just simplified the whole game of football. You know, do you ever see like in, in the NFL, Bill Belichick, just kind of do your job, just do your job. That's the, that's the mantra of Bill Belichick from the, from the Patriots. And, and McManamy was just like, this is what it is. If you don't have the ability to play, don't try and play. Just give it simple to the ones you can, because the rest of us can play, but we don't have your ability to run around and beat people up and do all the stuff that the, you know, the piano pushers do. So yeah, it was so funny. But then again, they talk about Sammy McElroy and, Northern Ireland legend, Man United, Man United legend. And I love playing on them because he just gave you that freedom to want to come and play and enjoy it. And, and that was just really, really good. Unfortunately, we had some some real beatings whenever we played on their summit. And again, it was just tough because we didn't have a massive pool of players, but we had, you know, players who wanted to go out and play and enjoy playing and were playing in the Premier League, did well, but just didn't have the depth in squad. And so I remember playing away to Spain. And, you know, you're playing against Javi, Iniesta, Raul up front, Casillas and Cole, you know, PK, just like it was Salgado right back, end up being quite good friends with him. But just like, how are you supposed to play against these guys? Because that was the time when they were like World Cup and European Championship winners. And so just really tough. And then, of course, Laurie Sanchez took over. Um, for the last period that I was there and I just didn't enjoy playing with him he just had a completely different style he just wanted to go long and it kind of summed up whenever he, I saw him stop in the session one time and and came to our midfielder a guy called Danny Sonner and he was Danny Sonner used to play mid centre midfield come back and try and get the ball off the defender and he was like stop the session Danny don't do that and I went, what do you mean and he goes don't get the ball off the defender they just want them to play along. And, and that was just his philosophy. But listen, it worked because they had loads of success. I just wasn't a part of it because they ended up, you know, they beat England, they beat Denmark. David Healy was absolutely flam with all the goals that he was scoring at the time. And But, you know, moved up with the FIFA rankings and played that certain type of football that didn't suit me. But, you know, Laurie Sanchez did really well. They ended up getting a Premier League job with Fulham after it. So it worked for him, but it just it wasn't my kind of football. And I, I really struggled in it. Yeah, it sounds like he was probably falling back to the crazy gang uh, from yeah. his playing days, yeah. I guess. Um, but Spain, definitely a team full of piano players. Although within yeah. that Northern Ireland camp, I'm sure you would have been one of the one of the piano <laughs> players yourself. Um, moving on, well, actually, still internationally speaking, but back, I guess, to, to club football. Um, and after your first spell with Norwich, I believe you would have had some trials um, with some mm. foreign clubs like uh, Pisa in Italy's Serie B. I think even not far from where I am these days on the West Coast, uh, but more north in San Jose with the, yeah. the earthquakes of yeah. the MLS. So yeah. firstly, I guess I know that someone you mentioned, Darren Huckerby, a former teammate of yours, did go on to play for the Quakes. And I think it was around that time. So that was, was that something that you nearly did together? Yeah. And then just generally speaking, is there a part of you today that, wishes you would have had the experience of playing in a foreign league definitely definitely yes and yes to both those so hucks had moved out the, the mls to san jose frank yallop brought him out there and, and he did exceptionally well i think he won like best newcomer that year in the mls was playing against beckham and stuff in the red galaxy and and hucks did so well but hucks always does well he's you know incredible player great athlete 
just really good guy. But because he was out there and, and I really wanted to try and go and play outside of England for, you know, at the end of my career. And just unfortunately it didn't work out because even in America, you know, I remember even going and, and having a having a few days at Colorado Rapids and and just probably having the best three days of training I've ever had in my life and and just didn't work out. Again, it's all just opinions really. So and also had a wee bit of a of a short time in in Real Salt Lake with like the likes of Kyle Beckerman and stuff like that. So yeah, it was just it just one of those things in football you you know, I was fortunate not to have to go on trial a lot in my career, but outside of England, I, I definitely needed to do it. And that's why I tried Italy first. That didn't work out. I tried America and then eventually came back to, to England and, and signed at Luton Town for a couple of years, which was, again, brilliant and horrible in equal measures because we went in the administration, got deducted 40 points in a 12-month period, stopped getting paid our wages, got relegated twice, but then we won a trophy at Wembley. So it's just... Yeah, it's just so weird how football deals with this hand and it just is, it's almost from the sublime to the ridiculous and and yeah, it's just weird how football has this ability to give you the best and worst of life in the in the, in the same 24 hours. Yeah, well, Luton's a great club that you, you did end up at. We've had the, the pleasure of chatting with some Luton legends like um, Ricky Hill and okay, yeah. Harford, who um, thoughts go out to him, I believe, is... is a bit unwell at the moment so hopefully he'll he'll make a recovery um on to though your post playing career i know we're skipping a bit um that's okay there was a bit more football that you you did go on to play after luton but quite impressively um paul you're the first footballer to get a master's degree in in psychology um something that isn't easy to do and also isn't isn't like a quick thing either you've got to go through the the motions so that's very impressive and with those qualifications you kind of would then go on to take on roles at palace um, and one of your former clubs, Norwich, as a sports psychologist. Do you think that your experience as an ex-player works as a bit of a double-edged sword in that I'd imagine it makes the current pros feel more comfortable speaking with you about the mental side of the game? But on the flip side, do you ever feel maybe too close to the issues? Can it be hard for you to remain an objective psychologist kind of professional when, when you've essentially been in those players' shoes? Yeah, I think it's it gives you an insight that if you haven't had that experience, I don't think you can fully appreciate. I think it's I think it's quite easy for whether you're a fan, whether you're a, an owner of a club, a coach, or or just anybody around a player that's you know quite close to someone who's involved in it to try and understand what it's like, you know, because you can hear the stories, you can see what they're doing, you can see how they react, etc. But until you're in it it's really, really difficult to fully appreciate the, the huge highs, the huge lows, the, the temptations, the difficulties, the constant judgment, the constant battering on social media or whatever it is. So that is something that I haven't had that in my career. I, I can obviously understand that side. And I think what I, the reason why I wanted to go and study my master's in, in psychology was because I thought that living off the plane experience just wasn't enough. And I got to a point where I thought, you know, me and thousands of other players have either played professionally or played in the Premier League or internationally, but so what? But I suppose the interest I always had in this mental performance and, and psychology was something that I really educated myself on this, reading you know numerous books and even doing a degree whenever it was, was playing distance learning, had a psychology module in that all the way through each year I was doing that. And, and then for that to suddenly go, 
you know what, this is probably the, the most enjoyable part of, of what I'm doing and then decided to go and I suppose it's really just for a bit of credibility and, and it was less for me and probably more for other people because the, the, of course the perception of what footballers are like is it's not necessarily very pleasant or complimentary so I thought well you know if most people think that footballers are pretty stupid then why don't I go out and try and prove you know without a doubt that we're not because I actually think that that footballers are the complete opposite of stupid I think they're some of the most astute and bright and clever guys I've ever come across and not just not academically although one of the guys I played with at Norwich was one of the brightest guys I've ever met in terms of he did four A levels four A stars while he was training full time so all the way through to players who don't have the academic fortitude but they are unbelievably bright because Football is an industry where you're constantly being surrounded by people who want things from you and they're constantly approaching you. So you get very good at reading people. And as soon as you start realizing within a split second, this person's genuine and this person just wants something, it's a really, really, you know, it's a really, really good mechanism to stop you getting kind of the wool pulling over your eyes, which many people want to do. Yeah, that's certainly true. And it, I mean, it's interesting you talk about, you know, footballers, you know, people think of footballers being stupid or whatever, or they're, they're not anymore. But I know you wrote the book, The Stupid Footballer is Dead. So I know, you know, encourage everybody to read that. And look, Paul, I know we spoke a bit there just about how, you know, you've done some work at football clubs. But our final question is really, what are you up to next? Because I know you've done a lot of corporate work as well. I mean, you spoke to loads of people at Microsoft. You've spoken to, you know, every big corporate company out there you've probably spoken to people so moving forward are you looking to write more books are you looking to do more sort of keynotes and um, what what's next for Paul McVeigh? Good question Joe really good question I, I suppose that's the the reason why I don't um, do as much work in the world of sports psychology now and all the media stuff that I did in terms of working for Sky Sports and BBC and BT Sport and all the rest of it it was because I just love this whole field of standing up and helping people think in a different way and challenging people's paradigms and perspectives of what they should do and how they should do it. And, and for me, that's the greatest buzz. And it's also the most rewarding thing. And because that allows me to go and, like you said, to be able to go and speak with the likes of Microsoft or Cisco or PwC or Deutsche Bank or whoever it happens to be, it just is so enjoyable. So if I've pretty much had 20 years of kicking a ball around with your friends and some person some crazy person paying you a lot of money to do it and for the last 10 11 years now people pay me money to go and speak to their staff about kicking a ball around with my friends and people pay money to do it and and that's just you know i, I feel so blessed and it, and it sounds crazy and but like my mom always says you know, when are you going to get a real job? And I'm like, <laughs> kind of got the 43 and haven't had one yet. So <laughs> why change? That's exactly how you want it. And yeah, long, long may that continue. But I think that's um, that's a good place for us to end things today. Um, I just want to thank my co-host, Kaitel. And then obviously a very big thank you from the both of us to Paul for joining us. And we've, you know, we've really enjoyed you being our guest. It's extra special for me when an ex-Spurs player comes on as well. But um, just before we end, Paul, how can our listeners sort of best follow you and keep up to date with everything that you're doing? Yeah, I suppose the the number one social media platform for me is normally LinkedIn. You know, I do all my business on there and people are normally contacting me to 
come and speak to their teams or or start working with them over you know longer periods longer programs so linkedin's a good way to connect but of course if you're on instagram or twitter it's just paul mcbay 77 and when you mentioned my book earlier in terms of the stupid footballer is dead because it was about seven or eight years ago so i feel like it's it's now you know, just give it out to anybody who wants a copy. So if you do want to go on my website, paulmcrae.co.uk, you can go and download it for free there. So go and have a have a copy, have a read, and, and hopefully it, it might stimulate a few thoughts. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks. Thanks again, Paul. Uh, I think you said it quite poignantly about, you know, having the playing career and enjoying this kind of new lease on life, talking uh, to people and educating people even more, I think, in a small way can can relate as far as obviously Joe and I never had the illustrious playing career that that you enjoyed but you know we 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 sure love talking about the good old days i should say mm-hmm. um but best of luck to you paul with everything that you're taking on um to our listeners if you enjoyed this interview please do follow us wherever you like to stream your podcasts just look for united mates football podcast same thing on youtube uh please subscribe there if you feel like putting some faces to these voices and then um on twitter instagram and facebook we are at united mates fp Give us a follow there and all that content and more you can find in one place. Last plug right here, unitedmatesfp.com. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.